This story is about working hard even when it seems silly. It's not boring. And for the people trying to make crazy things happen. It's that shot of optimism, yeah, yeah. It's not boring. Not boring is for the optimists. Take a little shot of optimism. Take a little shot of optimism. Just zoom out and take a little shot of optimism. Happy Thursday and welcome to Not Boring Founders. Today, I'm talking to Michael Kelly, the co-founder of Not Boring Capital portfolio company, Open Forest Protocol. Open Forest Protocol, or OFP, sits at the intersection of Web3 and climate. It lets stakeholders measure, report, and verify forestation projects, and lets project operators get access to carbon financing when their projects are successful and eligible. What first attracted me to OFP was the fact that by using a decentralized monitoring and validator network, OFP unlocks projects that are too small for traditional registries like Vera to verify, which make up the bulk of the world's forestation projects. More generally, this category of regenerative finance, the intersection of Web3 and climate, is one of the Web3 use cases I'm most excited by. By bringing transparency and liquidity to previously opaque and over-the-counter markets, more planet-positive projects will get funded and completed. Michael came from the crypto side of the world, and he shares his learnings from diving into climate and the voluntary credit market, along with his perspective on why Web3 primitives are crucial to hitting the world's climate goals with just the right level of detail. This is a fun one. Before we get to the conversation, though, a word from another company that's all about helping you measure and report, you like that transition? Causal. Many of us rely on Excel, and we couldn't imagine a world without it. We wrote that Excel will never die. Excel lets us quickly crunch numbers, build financial forecasts, and model out scenarios to make better decisions. But modeling in Excel and G Sheets does come with its challenges. Manual data dumps, refs, untraceable errors, and a lack of data protection create a constant stream of manual work, stress, and a lack of confidence in the work you just did. That's where Causal comes in. Causal is a better way for working with numbers. It's like Excel minus the arcane formulas, no more sheet one, dollar sign E, dollar sign four, or VLOOKUPs, plus effortless modeling, live data integrations with accounting systems, CRMs, and more, and beautiful interactive dashboards. Given current market conditions, Every startup needs a solid financial model to steer the ship. I've worked with the Causal team to create the startup suite, a set of four template models for early stage companies. It includes your revenue model, hiring plan, P&L, and runway projection, the basics for any startup to keep an eye on the finances and plan for the future. We use Causal here at Not Boring, and we love it. If you're a startup founder, early stage employee, or just a lover of all things data, you'll love Causal. Use the startup suite as a starting point or sign up for the product for free. The links are in the description below. Now let's get to it. Please enjoy my conversation with Michael Kelly, co-founder of OFP. <laughs> Welcome to Not Boring Founders. Thanks. Nice to be here, Packy. I think the best place to start is maybe just give a high level overview of the voluntary carbon markets. So we are going to be diving deep into what Open Forest Protocol is doing. I think the audience has probably a general famili familiarity with the idea of carbon markets and carbon credits and offsets and all of that. But could you just set the stage by explaining how it works broadly and maybe who the big players are and what the challenges are with the current system pre-refi and crypto? Yeah, that, that sounds good. The first thing maybe to prequel is that in terms of like where I'm coming from in looking at this, I'm not originally from the climate industry. So when I first started to learn about this market, I was in for a lot of surprises myself about how it worked, how it moved, how it operated, so on and so forth. So I think the voluntary carbon market, at least, usually is traced back to a combination of either Vera or Red Plus programs, like from the early 2000s. And essentially what they are, it's pretty interesting. It's essentially like non-governmental organizations who have a mandate to go to a specific project uh, with their own custom created methodology, depending on the type of project it is. And it's not just limited to nature-based projects. So it could be reforestation, afforestation, improved forest management. They've started doing mangroves to some degree, but they do completely unrelated nature-based projects as well. They show up and they basically create a custom methodology for the project. From that custom methodology, they'll create a measurement plan for measuring and verifying 
over time. And then depending on the specific structure, if it's Red Plus, Vera, or Gold Standard, they'll issue credits sometimes in advance of actually doing the measurement in the first place. So there's a couple of like really interesting things about that model. One thing also to add is that the scale of this over the last 20 to 24 years has not been super giant for forest-based projects. So I think like from the numbers that we've done, Vera's done like on the high end, 300 projects in 22 years of nature forest-based specifically, reforestation, afforestation. I think Gold Standard has done like 50 or 60. So like we're dealing with, when I came into this, it was like, oh, what's, what's the nature-based car market looking like? And then you dig in, there's two or three players that are official. There's a lot of other players that are unofficial, which kind of happen on a handshake basis of, oh, you're an NGO in Switzerland, come down to my project and create a methodology and we'll find a buyer and seller. The interesting thing though, I think, especially from a crypto perspective about this market is the incentive scheme between the parties involved. Right. So the project that wants to issue carbon credits is paying the validator to come into the project and saying, Hey, come validate my project and help me sell these credits as well. We're going to essentially create value from my forest. And you're the main party who's going to be checking it. Not even every year, maybe once every two to five years, but don't worry, it's going to help the world. And every, everyone's going to, everything's going to be better. As someone who grew up in, in finance in 20 aughts. It sounds awfully familiar with the ratings agencies being paid by the different people who are issuing mortgage-backed securities or whatever else. Not saying that it's as as bad as that, but yeah, certainly a conflict of incentives there. So when it comes to these people verifying, like this is a voluntary carbon market, is it a requirement or it just increases liquidity when Vera comes in and approves a project because it means that a buyer of the credit is more comfortable with the fact that this is something that has value that other people recognize will have value and they can report on their financials. Could I go in and verify something if everybody agreed that, I guess one buyer agreed that Packy said this is good, so it's good. What is the actual role of these people coming in and verifying? Yeah. So the verifier, as I understand it, is the stamp of legitimacy. And what the verifier will actually do is they'll subcontract to partners around the world to be the voice of legitimacy for them to come in. Now, the big qualification there is that um, sometimes what happens, which is actually what I was talking about when you went off, is if the project runs out of money, the verifier will no longer come and verify the project anymore simply because there's no more money involved. So there's a ProPublica article that came out and it was like, they, these journalists were doing a dive into this Red Plus project in Cambodia and they sourced a remote sensing company called Descartes Labs. And they asked Descartes Labs, they're like, hey, this project has supposedly been going on for 10 years or so. Can we see the state of the forests and how it stands using this remote sensor? And when they looked at it, it was pretty shocking results. It was like 86% of the forest had been cut down in one area, 92% in another area. It was like the best case scenario was like one forest had maintained its integrity. And that was like out of the six plots that they had contracted to pay. And when they asked the project, they said, you know, what happened here? He said, oh, we just ran out of money and we didn't have, we didn't have the funds to be able to bring the verifier in to keep verifying, to generate the credits, to be able to sell the credits, to make money, to keep the project going. And I think if we all just take a step back here for a second, is that's the voluntary carbon market. Right. That's what like we're I think EY is like coming out with reports being like nature based credits, net zero nature based scenario. It's going to be like two hundred dollars per credit or this is our this is the most high quality type of carbon credit you can get from nature. And it's a pretty troubled state of the current industry. You anticipated my next question. What is so valuable about forests and trees? Yeah, I think so. If we're going to if we're talking about how the old system looks at things, we're talking about it from the perspective of carbon sequestered. And the fact that if you can turn a new forest into an old growth forest over 150 years, the amount of carbon that is sequestered in the process of the forest being planted and evolving and growing over time is significant, it's stable, it's permanent, so it's staying in the ground, um, and it has multiplier effects that can lead to enhanced benefits for other types of vegetation or water or so on and so forth. Just to get a sense of the magnitudes here, Tropical forest can do between 40 to 60 credits per hectare. On the lower end, we always be conservative with these estimates. Mangroves, mangrove forests, depending on the type of mangrove, can do upwards of five to 600 credits per hectare. 
So, and that's why a lot of people are like, oh, just focus on mangroves. That's the tenderloin of carbon in the future, yada. But yeah, I think, so generally speaking, it's the fact that it, it has a way, a permanent basis from which the carbon can be stored in a reliable and easily maintained manner. That's not dealing with heavy machinery in some way, if you're going to be sucking it up, or it's not dealing with something that could change drastically over time. And all of a sudden the carbon we thought was there is no longer there. Yeah. So you mentioned that you're not from the climate space, you're from the crypto space. how did you find your way into this world? So I got dragged in, funnily enough. I had a friend in 2017 who's a professor of sustainability and he had a project with the World Bank and he wanted to see if we could use blockchain to track the money being transferred. It was with the government of Pakistan for a reforestation initiative they were doing. I should, I was pretty cool this and say at the time, the tech tree of crypto was like so bad, right? Like you have a barely functioning L1, NFTs aren't really a thing. DAOs definitely aren't a thing. DeFi definitely isn't a thing. So you're like literally just looking at like the prospect of hashing data onto an L1 and that's all that exists. So I gave him like a proof of concept on it. And then we actually started talking around the industry, the climate industry, not the crypto industry. We became really good friends with Christopher Martius who was the managing director of the Center for International Forestry Research. And they had actually done a lot of work in Red Plus. So if you can imagine like late, early 2018 to mid 2018, right? When crypto is nuking, like the three of us are jumping on calls every week and just basically just like dreaming about how blockchain could in some way be used to change the way that we interact with nature. And then weirdly enough, it died off in 2019 and 2020. We were like, oh, there's, it's too early. There's not a lot to do with this, yada went on, did other things. And then a Swiss friend of mine who I'd worked with back in 2017, got in touch and was like, yo, do you still have that white paper on forests? Because I know a guy who runs a reforestation NGO from Switzerland, older guy who's been in the specific for a long time. And he's keen to see if there's a, there's something in blockchain today that he could make use of. That was Fred, my, my co-founder. So I got connected with him. And then we looked at the product stack specifically on near at the time. And we were like, oh, like, Crypto has come a long way in, in four years, and maybe we can make this into something. But it definitely wasn't what we thought it was going to be. Like, it was definitely supposed to be way smaller than it turned out. And then we were like, oh, wow, VCM's in terrible shape. Crypto's going to change this. People like carbon. That's great, too. People are talking about biodiversity. Like, we were just, like, super lucky, I think, in, like, the timing. It was like, we had no clue what we were walking into. So yeah, you walked right into the refi storm. I guess at that point, when crypto was so janky, what were people excited about? And I guess what specific problems that we talked about or that we haven't talked about did people want to solve? Yeah, the big problem on the institutional level was some form of results-based financing scheme. So essentially being able to know if we transfer a big amount of money, like 80 to $100 million to Pakistan, how can we guarantee that money actually leads to forests in the ground? So when you're, so you're thinking essentially of constructing an entire system from the ground up of how does the traceability of the forest on the ground correlate the money that we will release to them. If there's a, a book that summarizes this super, I'm going to forget the name, but it was Kishore Mahbubani's book on, I want to say it was like the great convergence. And he has a chapter in that book where he's, it's at the end of the chapter and he talks about how there was this financing project of making sure that certain amounts of wood could go to Afghanistan. And he went through the value chain of all the different parties involved and how it shipped from Geneva to Italy. And then Italy went to Israel and like a $50 million pledge turned into like $20,000 of wood that the Afghanistanis got and they like burned it because there was nothing else they could do with it. And so that was actually what I, what we brought up originally. I just remembered that is these are the kind of conversations, which, which is like from a high level, how do you get big institutional money? into the world in an efficient manner where you know that it's not getting hijacked or misappropriated or misused. And I think to be hundred percent fair, it was very idealistic. Like the idea that like crypto could do this at the time. I think it's like, it's more realistic today than ever, but like in 2017, 2017, 2020 was like crypto idealism days, right? It was like, we're going to reinvent supply chains. We're going to do all this world changing stuff in three years after the tech just came out. We're still waiting for the first big supply chain, supply chain use case to, to come about. But I guess, how'd all of that then lead into OFP, Open Forest Protocol, 2021 comes around, 2020? Like, where do you take that initial conversation and start building something out? And how are you thinking about it? Yeah, the early ugly version of OFP would have just been a DAP where 
it would have been very one-dimensional. You would have uploaded data from the field, put it on chain, and then basically use that as a basis to turn around and be like, look at my data on chain. Look at what's happening with my forest. Someone come in and give me some type of value or money or something. And I'll keep doing this as long as you keep supplying me. No, the real, I think innovation, this is also pretty serendipitous, but at the time that I was put in touch with Fred, I was actually working with a project called Flux Protocol, which does decentralized oracles using it rather than using some type of machinery or algorithm, they're using a certain mechanism design that's similar to a prediction market. So essentially like Augur came along originally and they're like, we can use escalation and affirmation and denial to, to affirm whether, you know, a certain outcome is correct or not. But then Augur was like super clunky, cost a lot of money on the original Ethereum. And it's like, everyone forgot about it. The Flux Boys came along and they like, were like, oh, we can actually repurpose this on near with super fast transaction, super, super fast finality, and then super low transaction costs. We can use this to create a better version of affirming data that's moving on chain. So I was literally working with them on their mechanism design papers for the Oracle when this idea of open forest came along and I was like, yo, you could actually take this similar logic, but you'd have to expand it and modify it for forests, basically to fit the timeframe of forests and it fit the kind of industry a little bit better. But that kind of primitive is, I think the missing piece for building an entire network of decentralized validation. Yeah. yeah. First, yeah. yeah. Like yeah. the first in instantiation or at least like idea of the app the data would have lived on chain, but it could have been BS data if I had somehow <laughs> figured out a way to doctor photos or whatever data you needed. I could have just put it in there and it's permanently on chain, but wrong. But then with this, you have a way of scaling the verification process in a really big way. So I guess now that takes us to maybe talk through what you're building today, how, what OFP looks like right yeah, now. Yeah, that's a increasingly like complicated topic because it seems like we just keep building more into the ecosystem, which I'm not complaining about because I think it's going to pay itself back in three to four years. So the original logic on under OFP was actually extremely simple. It was, we want to create a platform for the measurement, reporting, and verification of data because any type of future regenerative economy that you can imagine has to begin with solid, reliable measurement reporting and verification from the ground of the project. So essentially the original design, which we've built on since then is projects are essentially minted as NFTs. They go to the field with a field app and essentially collect the most essential data that they need in order to report on the state of that forest. So it'd be height, diameter, random sample plot generation, photos, different things like that. Essentially what you would do as a consultant anyway, but without the kind of tricky methodologies that, that they build around it, you would take that data and you would essentially upload that data to a network of validators and the validators would have a certain amount of time to either affirm or deny that data in the binary. And then once that's affirmed or denied, the result of the validation gets written into the NFT metadata and the project can is on the clock again to collect data once more. There was no value component in that piece. It was literally just, we're going to do MRV and see what happens once we get this system off. The that is live. So just like for context of where we're at, the projects, the ability for projects to onboard was in July. I think right now we have about 62,000 hectares on the protocol, which is surprisingly good. Like yeah. I said, I'm from the crypto side. So I was like, I had no idea what to get from this. And I'm like, okay, that's dope. And, uh, and we're in the process of launching the first validations. Those will be on January 27th with the validators that we've signed essentially to try to speed the process up. And then any type of value piece that comes from this, which is the next layer, it is what basically we're building into that logic of projects collects data, project sends data, gets validated, repeat. You can basically build into that logic, this idea of the data that the project collects is run through an allometric equation. And that allometric equation determines a carbon value from the data that was collected. And then you can mint a, a natively on-chain carbon credit that is from the protocol. It's not from any entity. And we fell into that. And we 100% fell into that. That was not any, that was not planned from the beginning. That was like, oh, wow, this is just hanging right in front of us. That before, was come out in July. Yeah. Before we get to dive into the kind of value layer more, there's a bunch of things that I want to understand in, in the first piece too. And maybe part of it's just the bear market skepticism, but I think these are like good answers to a lot of things. Mm -hmm. I thought NF NFTs were 
stupid pictures of monkeys. What value do NFTs have to the project here? Yeah, it's interesting because the NFTs are not actually, at this point, not creating them to be monetizable. So you're not even selling the NFTs. The NFT is more than anything, just your digital stamp. It's your on-chain record keeper of a specific event or of a specific, I guess at this point it's forest data. So we say this is your forest project, but really what the NFT is holding in it is the data of the project. It's just the placeholder that holds that. And then it, and then essentially it's the holder of the metadata that gets written into the NFT over time, such that 10, 15, 20 years from now, you can simply look at the NFT of the project and have a reading on the performance of the forest project over the last 15 years, basically. And I'm going to ask overly dumb questions here, but like, why not just use a spreadsheet and save it to a regular database. Yeah. So I think if we think of this from a very big picture, we want a, a self-sustaining system with the value imbued in the system itself. And so what does that mean? It means that every single person on the OFP team should be able to disappear. And the protocol as it's been originally designed should be able to function indefinitely in a similar way to how Bitcoin or Ethereum operates. So the premise here is we need, and this is even more tricky when you're dealing with a suite of different decentralized stakeholders, right? So it's like, we could have one entity controlling all of the data for all of the projects, then the projects wouldn't have autonomy on the protocol and they'd be beholden to that one entity. So we structure this in such a way where every single project is fully autonomous and independent with their NFT, with the data they upload, that they get ran into NFT, they're basically able to hold it and say, look, this is me. This is what we are. There's no one in the entire universe that can take away this record keeping of who I am. That doesn't matter if, if the team disappears or anything else like that. And that goes upstream for the whole protocol in principle. That's awesome. Yeah. And then who are the people specifically in, in each one of the roles? So the person uploading a project, is that someone who owns the particular piece of land the people who are verifying are these people who are former consultants who are finding something that's more efficient where they don't have to pay X percent to the company that's giving them the assignments. And then who's validating? Like, could I go on and say, I don't know, that looks good to me. Or is there a particular kind of skill set that the early validators are? Yeah, I want to slow down my answer to this and really dig in because this is actually, I think, like where the unlock comes if we're careful with it, if we're careful with how we can explain it. So what I'll do is for each of these roles, the projects and the validators, we'll talk about what, what exists today. And then we'll talk about how we envision this evolving over time in an on-chain decentralized network. So it's like, you can really see the vision of like where we're going tomorrow with all Perfect. this. Right? So for projects today, it's limited because the reforestation industry is pretty tightly knit. Like it doesn't have a lot of funding come into it. It's pretty limited in who's able to really participate over time. So your project would typically be an NGO, a local community with the resources to organize and collect data, a project that's been government funded with a project manager in place in order to collect that data, or a project that's been corporate funded and in place to, to collect that data because they've had some type of pre-financing from a corporation with the land that they're managing. And that's more than anything to get your setup costs for seeds, the nursery, people to go out to the field, plant it, people to check up on it, so on and so forth. What, where do we see the project person evolving into the future? One of the big differences between our system and the existing system is where the agency and responsibility lies. So it's very different when you're a validator coming into a location and you have the responsibility of saying what the data is and the people who own the land or the local community that might be there really is not involved in the process whatsoever. When you flip the system and you say, here, if you want to do a project, you start your project, it's free. You have the agency to go out into the field, collect the data that you want to collect, upload that data and generate value for that data. And then the decentralized network will validate it without needing someone to necessarily block you or take value from you in some way. We expand the pool of what a potential project is, right? And so like in the future, we want to bring, especially, and this refers to different verticals, right? Because we're doing reforestation, afforestation now. We'll do mangroves, biodiversity, agroforestry, improved forest management in the coming year and a half. The idea is that a lot of this indigenous land that is pretty locked in terms of the value that it holds can now become unlocked because these different stakeholders come and you can get super granular with the, with the cascading value flows of that. Like to the extent where let's say I'm a project developer doing a project in, in, in indigenous land that I have permission for, you could imagine someone building an ADAP whereby X percent of the credits generated for the project 
get automatically pushed into the wallet of the field agent who's collecting the data that gets sent to, to be validated, right? Automatically guaranteed. So for the project's perspective, I think we envision it almost becoming like an Airbnb, some extent almost becoming like an Airbnb of nature-based conservation, preservation, and forest projects. Anyone with any amount of land of any size can basically take it on themselves if they're willing to front the responsibility of doing it for 20, 25 years and upload data and get value for that data, showing that they're contributing to solving the problem. Yeah. yeah I remember the first time that I talked to Jeremy, this was one of the most fascinating things to me that like the current infrastructure just can't support those kinds of small projects, right? Cause like the person from Vera or wherever else has to get on a plane. They have a full calendar already. They have to show up on the site and do all of those things where it just doesn't make sense under a certain size of project. And not only does it not make sense for their time or whatever else, but like literally you'd spend more carbon flying to whatever place it is that you'd need to verify than you'd actually save in the reforestation project in my backyard. But by having that person who is responsible for the project upload the data and then have this network of validators validate the data, it flips that completely on its head. So it's worth it because it essentially costs, you know, whatever that person's time is to validate costs nothing for me to say, cool, I just planted seven trees in my backyard. Like, what do I get for this? And so you can have a bunch more people participating in the ecosystem than you physically could have had beforehand. Yeah, exactly. It's just open sourcing it to the world. And it's a problem that I think the world is very keen to participate in. If an entrepreneur says, oh, shoot, I can make a 20% ROI off of buying up this many thousands of hectares in, in this area of the world and reforesting it, we're essentially entering like the transitory period where now there's value in nature. Like we're finally, we're slowly like crawling up and like finding ways of assigning and creating systems of valuing nature in, in a world where that hasn't existed yet. It's pretty awesome. That's the case and the place that we're in now, or you mentioned the word externalities before, where there are these externalities that are now just being captured and assigned value. So you can, you can get more value from doing the good thing than you could like push onto the rest of society by doing the bad thing, which is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. 100%. And then um, can I validate? Like, what does it take to, to validate? Yeah. So this is, huh, I'll give you like the truthful answer, not like the PR friendly, like whatever. Thank you. So when we look at validation, the idea, so the idea here is interesting because the game has also changed in traditional validation. There's one party that's going there and that has what you would suspect to be immediate clarification on the status of the forest. And they can write down very clearly and say, this is how things are. And this is the state of the forest that, that I'm reporting. And I'm, up, I'm giving that to create or sell some credit of some sort. With our validation structure, the idea is that the project is uploading data on chain for the state of their project, beginning with a baseline data upload. They do an upload two uploads every year for the first two years, and then one year thereafter. And we are then saying, okay. Using this baseline, we're now opening this up to a collective of, for now, qualified stakeholders who would be capable of zooming in on the data and looking at basically two things. How does the data that's been uploaded relate to the data that was uploaded in the past? And this is, again, thanks nature for this because your margin of variability is like pretty limited, right? So you can't be like, oh, my tree grew by a part that's not possible <laughs> to grow by. So it's like, and every time a project uploads that data, it's like they're writing on, they're writing Sharpie on their face saying, this is the state of my project. This is what I'm standing by. So that's the first process. The validators come in and the validators, okay, let's see how your own story fits with itself. And then the qualified validators piece comes to basically say, if depending on where the validator is coming from, they have a tool or some type of facet that can actually independently check if it's in range with what the forest project is uploaded. So you can think like remote sensing companies, LIDAR companies in a certain area, communities of people who would be in the area to be able to go check it, so on and so forth. Because our timeframes are now expanded, every validation takes 30 days in its initial validation and there's six months between the validations. So that means that literally, as if I'm a local validator on the ground, I have six months to go check out this forest from which when the validation starts, I can say, hey, I checked this out in the last six months. How does that align with your satellite data? How does all that align with the historical record of data that the, for that the project has uploaded over the last five years? And, and that those people 
communicating with each other? Will there be like this ecosystem of apps built on top that are helping to triangulate the different data sources and just saying, oh yeah, that's bullshit. A tree can never grow that fast. We can, we don't even need a human here. Or what does that look like yeah. now? And how do you think that evolves? Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. So right now the big qualification is that when these validators are validating, they can't see what the other validators are validating. So they can only see themselves. And the principle there is actually pretty simple and pretty, I don't know how to describe it, like transparency right in front of you. You can coordinate truth easier than you can coordinate falsehood. Yep. So if a, bunch of, if a bunch of parties are all aligned and they can't see what everyone else is thinking, but they're all dealing with the same base data set or their own data set that they're bringing in, they're going to vote on what seems intuitively to be the case to them and not try to overthink it and say, wait, what if someone thought this or that? We are building into the dashboard, the widget called the validator forum. And the idea behind the validator forum is essentially to be able to create threads on every single data upload where all the different validators can basically come in and share their data of how they're seeing this specific upcoming data upload. And it, it doesn't even have to be necessarily related to someone doing something with big machinery or being on the ground. It could literally be like PricewaterhouseCoopers-style consultant that says, hey, I've looked at the last eight data uploads of this project. I've looked at the margin of variability in the data uploads. I'm going to forecast and say, this is what we should be getting if this is a legitimate data upload within this range. And if not, you should double check and scrutinize this to some degree a little larger. I think where it goes to answer your question. So the goal is for projects to actually have not just field data they have to collect, but to have additional widgets that you can just add into their dashboard. So they're basically sending packages of data on chain, right? They're saying like, yeah. look, we collected data from the field, but here's our remote sensing data. Here's our flood analysis check. Here's, every, here's everything. So this shouldn't be hard to validate whatsoever. We'll get the work done ahead of time. So you have the best information possible for seeing that we're legitimate. And then on the other side for validators, we say, we want to expand the validator network to as many different perspectives as possible. If you were able to land like a NASA or a SpaceX, like that's already pretty, that's going to change everything in terms of the legitimacy of how it looks. But between a NASA and a SpaceX and a local person who lives on the ground, there's thousands of potential stakeholders who could be involved. And I think for me at least, and this is not, this is coming from the crypto side of the house and not at all from the climate side of the house, but it's like, I actually think that people are pretty smart. And I think that like in a future, like five, six, seven years from now, you could get like a 14 year old who is growing up somewhere and has deep connection with understanding forests or how forests operate. And that 14 year old should be able to have a voice, however small it is on a validator network, if he's willing to put the time in and participate. I think that's what ideally I would love to move towards this kind of system of sure. There are the key pillars of they're respected from the outside. No one's going to ask if they're doing their job or not, but there's a lot more room to open up the pool for new people who actually would have a lot to contribute and they might catch things and they might also be able to verify things in new ways that maybe we haven't thought of yet. That's super cool. And I guess, is there some sort of feedback loop happening where if, uh, if some idiot 14 year old comes on and is like just playing a prank on the system and validating everything, like that person's vote counts less or like what, what's the reinforcement mechanism there? Yeah, for now, we've gated and we whitelist the validators coming onto the platform. So you validate with your token, right? OPN token is a utility token, officially, thanks to Switzerland's categorization. And you would validate with the amount of tokens that you would hold, or interestingly, the amount of tokens that someone delegates to you. So hypothetically, you know, it if we're looking at this kind of from financial incentives, because you're rewarded for being on the correct side of the data upload of the validation, ideally the system has a mechanism of weeding out the bad actors, because if the assumption is that the bad actors are going to troll and there's not a proportion of bad actors on the network, then the trolls aren't going to win anything. And so you wouldn't want to delegate that money to the trolls. And if the trolls want to repeatedly every six months, jump on and try to mess with the system to earn nothing, fine. The system's built that way to do that. People might try that, but we're going to make sure that there's always, at least from the very beginning, qualified, committed people who see the vision of this in the way that we're imagining it to pretty much guarantee that we wouldn't have trolls be able to take over anytime soon. Yeah. Got it. That makes sense. And then, so I guess moving to the kind of value piece of the system now, one interesting way, I guess, to, to frame like what the market thinks of OFP is like, how does the value of Vera verified nature credit compare to an OFP verified nature credit? Is that a thing that you can tell right now? And how do you see that trending over time? Yeah, that's a good question. So first off, I would say market doesn't, the market is going to have to learn about OFP first. It's going to take a while for the market to be like, oh, this is possible. This is a thing. What we like to say is that 
OFP is going to bring sound carbon to the world. So Bitcoin sound money, like what, what's the premise behind sound carbon? It's data backed carbon. It's you can see the whole life cycle of the carbon credit. You can see when it was generated, what the validation vote was that generated it, what the data upload was that led to the generation event, the history of the entire project and their performance up until that point where it's gone, if it was sold, if it was offset and what happened to the credit on chain. And so like the question of like, how is that going to mix with traditional Vera? I think it's going to be quite shocking because people, I don't think have imagined that such a system is even possible up until this point. A lot of these credits as they exist, they are complete black boxes with fallouts going through when they were validated, what methodologies they use, they're covered. You don't know what went into it. You don't even know where they were sold. And so we're really turning the whole thing on its head. And pretty much saying, and then that's the cool value discovery piece is it's let's see what the market, let's see what the voluntary card market is really made of, right? Let's see if they really believe in what they're saying. And if they're willing to value and purchase offset and speak about a fully data backed carbon credit that doesn't have a beautiful signature of a well-known consultant on it, right? Or a corporate on it. For sure. And what do you see that? timeline being like, what are the milestones that you're looking at along the way to say, cool, this is trending in the right direction. We're collecting the right data. The market actually is beginning to believe in this thing. Like, how are you judging that as you go along? I think we're largely looking at the number of projects that are onboarding and the off takers and what kind of off takers are interested in buying the credits and what price we're able to sell the credits for. This is also an interesting kind of point in time for the evolution of the VCM because We've had this discussion internally many times. It's pick your future of the VCM. Are we going like boutique and kind of goes and they want to select the regions that the credits come from and they want to dig in and call the projects, get to know them really, get to get a feel for the specific taste of the credit. Or are we go in financialization future where like a massive multi-billion dollar liquid voluntary card market lives across a number of exchanges with financial derivatives, with DeFi Legos built around it. And corporates are basically just coming in and saying, oh, like we know that we know open carbon credits are sound. We'll look if we want like a mangrove one or a biodiversity one or a carbon or a normal reforestation one. We'll just buy the lot and offset it. We won't even need to look at where it comes from because we trust the system to be sound. That those two possible futures are like probably going to emerge before our eyes in the next 10 years. And I tend to lean toward the financialization one just because I'm more of a crypto background kind of guy. But maybe, I mean, for there might be an in-between for a while. I know a lot of people are like, if corporates will buy your credits, like then it'll be a big green light affirmation that you're on the right track. I don't know if the corporates know what to look for, to tell you the truth, but that's, that's, I think, yeah, where we're at. Which brings us to an interesting question, which is the V in VCM is voluntary. Like why, and this is maybe it's self-evident, but like, why are corporations buying credits in the first place? And I guess to your point, like they don't know what to look for. They're just looking for a stamp because they need to achieve what by buying the credits. Yeah. People don't like the word offset anymore. They prefer the word drawdown. So you have to like work within the narrative. I think more than anything, there is voluntary commitments done by a host of these corporates saying we're committing to transition to net zero emissions over the next 10 or 15 years. And in, in doing this, clearly we can't restructure supply chain or shut down one of our plants. So we're going to compensate for that by buying a credit somewhere and offsetting the value of that credit over time. Interesting thing on this point, actually, which probably should have brought up earlier, but like the playing field that we're on right now on the nature timeframe is not neutral. So I was bringing this up because this was a shock to me when I discovered it, learning about this industry, but like we lose 4.7 million hectares of forests a year around the world. So while all this conversation is going on of, oh, are you going to scale? How does that work? How does that like fit with the legacy system? It's like the legacy system has done 300 projects in 22 years, a little, give them 500, just legacy systems at 500 projects in 22 years. We're losing 4.7 million hectares a year. And there are corporates with their commitments saying, hey, as a part of our business model, we believe we want to offset a certain amount of carbon or we want to purchase a certain amount of credits that could become mandatory in the future, depending on what certain governments do. But the point is, it's it's a really messed up picture when you look at it. It's like the corporates are having trouble trusting where to buy their credits from, while all the while we're just like leaking forests in, into oblivion on, on, on an annual basis. And everyone's yeah. like, oh, this is fine, right? <laughs> it's not fine. <laughs> how many hectares are there totally? So if we're losing 4.7 million hectares a year, how many are there totally? 
So when we do our total addressable market for OFP, we tend to conservatively come to about 2 billion hectares of like addressable market over the next 15 to 40, 50 years, depending on how bad things go. 1% of that market was what our 2030 goals were, which is 1 million hectares on the protocol, which is, and that's only of the billion that could be used for reforestation. So yeah, there's actually have the, there's a graphic from our world in data that breaks it down, but of course it used to be a lot worse in terms of like net loss. We're down 47 million hectares a decade. I think in like the sixties, it was like 116 million hectares. I would say there's probably about 1.5 billion hectares there reliably. And then if you add in mangroves and other areas like that, you could probably run that number up. The actually interesting thing though about this is it's one thing to be like, how many hectares are there? It's another thing to be like, what's the state of biodiversity and what are the dependencies on these hectares that, that we're, that we can dig into. Right. And like, when yeah. you look there, it's even worse. Cause you're like, we're about to, there, there's a lot of cascading effects of losing these types of forests over time. Yeah. yeah if a butterfly's wing flap can cause a hurricane, yeah, removing 4.7 million hectares of forest can cause a whole lot more damage than that. So you, I guess one other way to describe the market is there's like the supply side and the demand side. You're working on the supply side. Where do these credits go then to get to the corporates or like, who are you working with to get these credits to market? Yeah, what we're building into the core protocol is an auction mechanism. So we're looking at carbon like a commodity in a normal commodity auction, as you would have, say, in the United States in the Midwest, the producers would bring their commodity to a single place. And then the market makers or the resellers or the people who are looking for it would come and they would purchase it up and then put it into the market or sell it to their client base, so on and so forth. So we're building that into OFP such that projects can choose to automatically auction their credits when they're generated to a whitelisted suite of market makers and buyers. And those are the, cla- the typical suspects in refi, Flow Carbon, Toucan, Sankin. And there's a couple others that aren't strictly refi. I think some of the exchanges have expressed interest in being able to get in at the ground. That's how we intend to aggregate and offload the credits in our system. And then what they decide to do with it is actually an interesting conversation. And a lot of it depends on how creative you can be in terms of the crypto product stack that exists today. Cello was originally interested in, in, in having credits back the Cello reserve, right? They wanted yeah. to kind of build that way. I think a DeFi primitive of a stable coin backed with carbon or a mixture of carbon and other basket of assets, like that possibly is a hit in the future. Other than that, it probably mark market infrastructure offset infrastructure. So if people, if a party thinks they can sell the corporates directly and easily, they'll buy up a pack and then resell them probably with a small amount of return, or they'll create a liquid market and derivatives on it in some type of order book in some sense, if people want to speculate on that future. Yeah. So that's kind of the current landscape. I would expect it to totally change a year or two from now, if we're honest, right? Yeah. I'm going to make you put your future hat on here a little bit. So we'll start with the crypto perspective. Which is if you're if you had a magic wand and were in charge of how these markets develop, like looking back at a decade, like what does this whole market look like? What are people doing with it? You said that you lean towards financialization, but what does that look like in someone's everyday kind of life as they're thinking about building their portfolio? Yeah. So I guess the qualifications are we thinking dystopia or non-dystopia in the sense we're an optimistic podcast here. We're thinking solar uh, punk or solar punk punk utopia. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I think in the, in the most optimistic scenario for the average person, if some type of um, offset requires, if there's an offset requirement at some point in life, you would be able to purchase an offset for your specific zone. More, more likely what would probably happen is retail would have the opportunity to capitalize off of the behavior and commitments of the corporates. And we would have these massive liquid carbon markets where the corporates would essentially be the ones getting squeezed. The corporates would be the ones that would need to plan ahead in terms of how much they're going to purchase, because if they're not able to transition or draw down sufficiently, either regulatory wise or voluntarily wise, their commitments would make promote, I don't know the right word, would force them to buy enough credits to offset and justify whatever their commitment was. So if I'm retail, I'm looking at this market or if I'm a family office, if I'm in finance, I'm looking at this market, I'm asking how much supply is coming onto this market for how many commitments are emerging globally from around the world to do this. 
And if I can get to this supply before the people who have to buy this can, I can mark it up or hedge it or do something with it as a way of making money off of the, these commitment needs. Yeah. Like long-term it has this like weird perverse dynamic where like, if I'm holding credits long-term, I'm actually rooting against more supply coming online. So I'm rooting against more trees being saved or planted or whatever else. So it has that weird property long-term, but yeah, you're right. Short-term, if you can get ahead of necessary buys, whether that's mandatory coming from the government or just because shareholders want companies to offset their carbon footprint, then that's a really good thing. But is that long-term dynamic, right? It's like as a buy and hold asset, it's weird because you want more supply to come online, but you wouldn't as an owner. Yeah. So the long-term, it's going to be interesting. I think the long-term has a lot to do with how realistically you think we'll be able to transition or draw down or how long do we think that we're going to be needing to purchase credits for and how the credit market has room to grow. I'll say, I think a lot of the analysts from what they're predicting, see the demand going up continuously through about 2050, 2055. So that's, I think if that's not long-term, like medium-term next 30 to 40 years, you're going to be having like reoccurring growing demand. But the interesting thing, I think from a long-term perspective, which we've thought a fair amount about is like, what's the end game with crypto here? The end game with crypto here is that what started as a conversation on the value of nature turns into a conversation on the nature of value, whereby at a certain point, people start to realize we don't actually, we don't, we should not be monetizing nature itself and using that to buy and sell and speculate on. We should be using the data of the conservation of nature itself as a basis for a type of monetary system that's sustainable and that can be used to exchange other things. And I think that's like a multi-century long kind of conversation. But I think if you look at this point in time, for the first time ever, we actually have the technology at scale to do this in a global decentralized manner whereby we could create some type of nature-backed currency that that actually ebbs and flows with the way our relationship with nature to some degree. Yeah, um, it's hard to say that without sounding like a little bit over, like I do sound a little bit over, like, oh, without sounding a little bit crazy and over optimistic and futuristic. I know that in Ministry for the Future, the Kim Stanley Robinson book, there's an idea for that. Although he said afterwards that he didn't love crypto, but I wrote about Cello and I think got pilled on that idea as well. Hopefully it'll be less than multi-centuries, but yeah, this is, if we don't fuck it up, a good opportunity to rethink what the value systems look like in a way that's not degrowth, not anything like that, but it's just actually like a better way of doing something because we've evolved and learned more and have better tools at our disposal and all of that. So I guess for the last question, since we're talking on this time frame, I normally ask people that if everything goes right in a decade, what does the world look like? I think that's obviously too short of a time frame here, but just beyond like that that system of value, if everything goes right for OFP, like what does the world look like in a century? First off, for me at least, it's about getting that 4.7 million number down to parity, down to zero. That's and I think it's that and it's also dealing with the biodiversity hotspots that are also at risk, getting like, we're essentially trying to hold the line, put some glue in where the system's left to date and buffer that. I think more realistically, if we're talking from the project's perspective, the crypto perspective, ideally it's the largest nature-based carbon market supplier in the world in the next probably 10 to 15 years, just because the scale that we can pump this out, we're able to bring indigenous communities off the sidelines in a way where they have agency in a way where they're actually fairly rewarded for the land that they're stewarding. Carbon markets as a whole are no longer these fringe slash skeptical slash unclear opaque systems, but everyone trusts in carbon markets because they can see where it comes from and they can make sense of from a high level that there, there actually is some type of value being represented with the asset being created. And then I'll go on a limb and say, it makes crypto one of the greenest industries in the world. Because that I think is the composability piece of this idea of I'm a Bitcoin miner and I can route X percent of my fees or X percent of my return directly into a pool that invests in a forest project and returns carbon to me. Like we're about to get overlapping in crypto, the different ways that the value will revolve around this such that if we can pull this off and start cranking these credits out at scale, like there'll be more than enough credits for everyone in crypto to turn around and be like, we're now the greenest industry in the world. We supply the largest nature car market and we've tied money to nature. That would be really cool. 
I know. I, <laughs> I love that. I forget who said it, but one of my favorite takes was that everybody's worried about how much carbon there is in the air, but like actually in a century, the issue is going to be that there's not going to be enough carbon because we'll have done such a good job pulling it <laughs> back out of the air. And that feels like an equally optimistic, but also realistic take. Like it, it seems like it could be table stakes at some point for a protocol to just program in, hey, 1% mm -hmm. of whatever we do is going to buy these things. And mm -hmm. fuck you for, for the environmental FUD over the past decade. And we're just going to blow this thing out of the water. Yeah, that would be a very cool future because I know that's what that's what kind of turns a lot of people off now about crypto. We get these questions a lot and it's, man, like we're changing things. Crypto is changing things on all stacks, not just money, but nature, value, all that stuff. It's here to stay. So I love it. Where can people go find you, Open Forest Protocol? And for someone like me, and let's assume the audience kind of is a bunch of people like me who couldn't be a validator, what's the best way for them to get involved? You will be able to delegate. So you will be able to essentially give your tokens to a validator. So if there's an indigenous community that, you know, is relevant in a certain area, you could potentially support the indigenous community or a remote sensing company that, that will be coming. We didn't really talk about a lot of the price mechanisms of the token, but in owning the token, you yield the fee of the carbon on the protocol. So it's the world's first carbon yielding asset, right? So if I'm a corporate and 10 years from now, I'm worried about my ability to purchase credits you can just lock up and yield real credits coming from the system itself, right? It's that's real cool. exogenous value, not just crypto created endogenous value, right? So that, that's, that's, yeah, that's something that, that you'll always, that you'll be able to do from whenever the first carbon credits come live on the platform. I think beyond that, what we really want to do is we want to expand the conversation because literally 80% of our trouble is explaining what we are and like p getting people to start thinking on the systems level, getting big players interested in saying, oh, it doesn't matter if you're a small farmer or you're the world bank, this is a decentralized system that's going to eventually come and affect you, whether it's now five or 10 years from now. And we'd love to start these conversations and, and get these dialogues going to move the needle on getting these players off the sidelines. But evangelizing for us is really helpful. And thinking of my goal also with this is like, we're hoping to bring a new generation of climate entrepreneurs onto OFP who want to build dApps and solutions on top, who want to do creative things with the, with the value that's generated. If universities, if young people give them information and tell them to get started or to get involved in this, cause we'd love to have as, as much help as we can get. Yeah. So for like the normie audience, myself, like include, just, I'm trying to think of like the one sentence description that if you're like just talking to somebody random at a university, you explain it. And it feels like to me almost Airbnb for nature-based credits where it's just a way of increasing the supply side by making a wider number of projects available, accessible, verifiable, and solving this like seemingly insurmountable demand overwhelming supply problem by making it easier to bring supply online. I guess that wasn't particularly uncomplicated, but does that sound right? Yeah, it's exactly right. I think it, it hits the most important nail on the head of the chain, the switch. If we look at this as like a switch that's changing, that's the switch right there of expanding supply, using your decentralized code base to help manage and account for everything that's going on and then building on top of that for entirely new value systems. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm, I was excited about this from the first time that, that I talked to Jeremy. I'm even more excited to be an investor now. Thanks so much for coming on and for doing this. I can't wait yeah. to see where this goes. Great to meet you, Packy. Thanks for the time.